the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is. And welcome back Friday, December 10th, 2021. Open lines Friday for you, 602-508-0960. Anything you want to talk about, raise, anything about food, music, politics, philosophy, you name it. John Noonan writes, if the narrative sounds too good to be true, it probably is. References. One, Jussie Smollett. Two, Steele Dossier. Three, Lab Leak Theory. Four, Covington Kids. Five, Rittenhouse. Six, Russian Bounties. Seven, Hunter's Laptop equals Russian Disinformation. There are many more we could go into as well. From Bubba Wallace to the story of a tree noose in California. Now, what is interesting is none of these are one-offs. These are not mistakes or errors that are easily corrected, much less contained. Consider Inri Jesse Smollett. The story consumed Hollywood. I just got done watching actress Ellen Page on The Colbert Show at the time, screaming and crying about how we live in such a bigoted society that the worst thing is our lack of outrage. This was about Jesse Smollett. She said this country created the atmosphere to allow him to be attacked. She blamed, get this, Mike Pence for representing such bigotry. The only interesting thing there is that she didn't attack then-President Trump. Why? Well, you have to divine a little bit, but there was. Mike Pence was once governor of Indiana, and Ellen Page says against her marriage because he didn't support same-sex marriages. So it was about her, not the issue of bigotry generally. One usually doesn't try to fry the small fish when the big one is sitting right there. And the truth is, however you want to consider this, Donald Trump was the bigger and easier fish. Nope. Though she went after Pence because he affected her feelings more. One is tempted to ask Ellen, If this were five years earlier, would you have said the same thing about Barack Obama, who then was also against same-sex marriage? But that would take rationality, and we live in a deracinated state and culture just now. I should add, if the actress's name is unfamiliar to you, Ellen Page, it's because she's recently changed it, as she changed her gender as well. She considers herself a man now named Elliot. But note the common thread of all these false stories, each in the service of proving racism in our society, with only one exception, the Russian propaganda stories, like Hunter and election interference. Those were in the service of Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden. One might just say anything that defeats a Republican. I'll come back to all this in a moment. I was speaking of the repeater effect of these stories, not just being one-offs. Back to Smollett, it wasn't just Hollywood wasn't just every news network and morning show. Joe Biden tweeted at the time, quote, what happened today to Jesse Smollett must never be tolerated in this country. We must stand up and demand that we no longer give this hate safe harbor, that homophobia and racism have no place on our streets 
or in our hearts. We are with you, Jussie. Kamala Harris called it a modern-day lynching. This isn't, I'm not repeating this to show how wrong they were. That's self-evident. Look at what Joe Biden said. What happened today to Jussie Smollett must never be tolerated in this country. Guess what? It isn't. And it wasn't before Jussie Smollett. That's the thing. That's the thing. There's a narrative that this country engages in this behavior, and it doesn't. Not the way they portrayed it. All of it was wrong. None of it ever corrected or apologized for. Now, what's additionally interesting is all these stories, proven wrong as they have been, proven hoaxes and political operations of propaganda as they have been, do not receive apologies or corrections from the people who weighed in. I don't care about Elliot Page, but do you think they, as she wants to be referred to, will go back on Colbert to explain and apologize for the indictments of this country since the facts have borne out that they were all running around like modern-day Emily Latellas, outraged as Puerto Rico wanted to become a stake and all those violins on television? Why is that a concern? History wars is the reason. Have we not been lectured for about a year and a half that it is conservatives who want to paint our history in a way that neglects the things we did wrong? That we are the ones who want revisionist history? That we want to cover up parts of our history? That we are afraid of not only teaching the truth, but the whole truth? As I mentioned yesterday, it's not as if this is even recent history from 2019 and 2020. This week, The BLM movement put out a statement not just defending Jesse Smollett, but doubling down on his innocence. So just who is inventing the past? The same who are inventing the present. Perhaps it was Jesse Smollett's truth that a couple of Trump supporters attacked him. Perhaps it was CNN's truth and The Washington Post's truth that Nick Sandman was harassed excuse me, was harassing a Native American war hero. Perhaps it is the New York Times' truth that Hunter Biden is a victim of Russian disinformation. Perhaps it is the rest of the world's truth that Kyle Rittenhouse shot black people. You know what's different about conservatives? They have wanted to teach the truth and all its history for nearly ever. The history books we've liked, for example, did not cover up slavery and racism in America. They taught it well. I was steeped in the study of it in both public and private schools throughout the 1970s, 1980s, and 1990s. Did I miss some great whitewashing and grand censorship about all of this that took place right after 9-11? No. What I do recall right after 9-11 was the entire country doing its very best not to come off in a way bigoted against the Muslim religion. I remember the born-again white Texan who was our president, lambasted for being all those things, going to a mosque as one of his first stops to give a speech to tell the world and the country we respect Islam and are not going to war against it. But then I also remember any time anyone raised concerns about Islamism in America, not Islam, but political or radical Islam, they were called Islamophobic. So you kind of look around, and here's what can happen. You can be doing nothing, just standing there, kind of like Nick Sandman, and get tarred and feathered as a bigot for no reason. And, of course, if you do this enough, why, of course, a Jussie Smollett will think everyone will be behind him because MAGA means hatred 
and bigotry. Never ever once does the media think make America great again could just mean make America great again. How many articles did we see that that phrase was code or dog whistling for a pre-civil rights past? Meanwhile, those chiming in the most loudly were engaging actively in violations of civil rights and group libel. Do we want facts in history and actual news, or do we not? And if we don't, where do we go on any kind of agreed-upon narrative, ever? And if we don't have an agreed-upon narrative, what kind of cultural or civil lingua franca can we have? And if we can't have a common cultural or civic understanding of things, how do we ever enforce laws? And if we can't enforce laws against violence, bigotry, theft, racism, you name it, how does anyone know what is right or wrong or who is guilty or not? The left has tried awfully hard to put entire races and countries in the dock here, but they are asking us to believe their truth and not the truth. I hope we can appreciate how dangerous that is. For if we continue to go this way, we might just as well dispense with juries and trials altogether and, I suppose, laws too. That would be a pretty good reason, it seems to me, to get rid of the police as well, wouldn't it? What would they be policing after all? But people do get hurt. People's property does get stro stolen. There are criminals. It's just we're turning ourselves into a people who don't care anymore because as the incubus for the entire BLM movement philosophy teaches, property is actually the enemy. As is truth, if it doesn't suit the purpose of the revolution. Remember what their teacher said. The purpose of philosophy is not to understand history, but to change it. It's become the purpose of the many just now to change the present as well. Beware revolutions that want to go to war with truth. Ours worked so well and still works so well because it was based on it. And there's a remnant here that still believes in that. Saving our revolution means saving that truth and the fact that there still is such a thing. I'm Seth Liebson, 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. The sad news today is that Mike Nesmith of the Monkees passed away. And uh, we can talk about that. We've had a lot of music talk this week. It is what, um, it is the magic that, uh, that makes life, it is part of the magic. That's a better way to put it. It is part of the magic that makes life um, have so much meaning to it and give it so much uh, flavor. I just saw uh, saw him uh, in September, I guess it was, uh, right, about three months ago. And uh, it was just he and Mickey Dolenz, the other two monkeys, uh, da uh, Davy Jones and uh, and Peter Torkelson, uh, had already um, predeceased them. But Mickey Dolenz and uh, Mike, uh, Mike Nesmith were, um, were over at the Celebrity Theater, got to see him. He was uh, 78, died, uh, died from heart failure. And, uh, you know, whenever these things um, come come to you as news, it just takes you back a little bit, doesn't it? Um, at least it does for me. 
vis-a-vis your childhood. These I remember coming home uh, from school every day, and they were uh, reruns for sure, but you'd turn the television on, and there was The Monkees. And it was a silly show, of course. Um, it is a... It is a it it it's a it's a it's an unfair thing to say that the monkeys were, you know, simply a, a Hollywood created musical group. Uh, some of them did really have a great deal of talent, and Mike Mike Nesmith was one of them. He wrote songs for other people. He wrote a song for Linda Ronstadt. You may know a uh, different different drum that famous song, um, and. Um, and one of the other things which was true about the monkeys too, which was I think equally said of Sonny and Cher, they were popular, most popular in the '60s, and then of course a little bit into the '70s, when much of rock and roll, what much of popular vocal music was changing, much of the youth's music was changing. You would not have seen them, for example, at Woodstock. They were not part and parcel of the. Um, of the new emerging culture in young people's music. They had nothing to do with some of the, um, some of the then growing drug culture, some of the then going, uh, what you might call party culture. They were, you know, kind of a, a blended remnant of the fifties and sixties. And perhaps maybe in part two, seen as a little bit uncool, a little bit outdated. Um, and, Okay, I get it. That's uh, they were they were fighting the times. Sinatra was fighting the times then as well. But a little bit of our innocence dies with these people. A little bit of our youth makes us feel just uh, a little bit older. And uh, so, to those who uh, entertain us health healthily and healthfully, we uh, bid you rest in peace. And as far as I can tell, that would include Mike Nesmith as well. You wonder, you kind of wonder what someone like Mickey Dolenz is thinking on a day like today. Does he feel like he has no more siblings left? I don't know. I don't know much about them, but it must be an eerie feeling. Rick is in Phoenix. Hello, Rick. Hi there, Seth. Good to talk to you today. And you as well. I just have a real quick bone to pick with you. Yes, sir. I went to bed last night, and I laid in bed trying to go to sleep... With all of these love songs <laughs> rolling through my head, uh-huh. just rolling through my head, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which which was nice in a way, but it was hard to go to sleep. But hey, it, I thought of a group that we might have overlooked, a very important uh, group in this genre uh, that that we uh, that we may have uh, overlooked, and that is. Hermans, Hermans. A lot of their songs were love songs, like There's a Kind of Hush, um, uh, Henry VIII, uh, I'm Standing... Is Henry VIII a love song? I'm I'm going to push back on Henry VIII with you, my dear friend. (laughs) Okay. okay. No, it's it's not a love song, (laughs) my friend. <laughs> that was like okay. John McCain, I'll, right? That's not I'll a love accept, song, my friend. Right. That's something John I'll McCain accept, would say. However, right. however, that, I will uh, tell you, I'm into something good. Is a great love song. Yes, and, uh, and what and who written by could, Carol and King. 
Right, and who could forget that uh, famous one they did, don't go out into the rain or you'll melt, sugar. You know, I saw Herman's Hermits the first time I saw the monkeys, believe it or not, in 87, not a couple months ago when I saw the monkeys, but I've seen, I guess, yeah. the monkeys twice now. It was okay. it was a it was a kind of a revival or yeah I guess kind of a revival tour. It was the monkeys. It was Herman's Hermits and Gary Puckett in the Union Gap. Oh wow! Nineteen eighty six, maybe I want to say. Yeah. Oh my goodness. So I get yeah. Monkeys what might be one of the show. few bands. Weirdly enough, I mean it's not like I love the monkeys. It's just it's funny how yeah. life is. So I ended up seeing them twice. There's I can't think of. Outside of a couple trumpet players who I saw numerous times, I can't think of any other band I've seen twice, I don't think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, but, you know, back then, it seemed like there were a lot of uh, love songs, you yeah, know, more, uh, until more. until the 12th of Never, yeah. uh, uh, Cherish, uh, Love Can Make You Happy, uh, just, just a lot of them. Oh, that, Rick, there uh, were a ton, just a ton. Yeah, there were a ton, there were a ton. So, so on uh, our experiment <clears throat> yesterday with our bumper, the experiment yielded that there was about a 50-50 split between songs that deal with love. 50% of them were about falling in and 50% were about splitting up. Yeah, yeah. That was the best well, we could do. Well, here, here's... Which might lead to the to the popularized statistic that something like it's I know it's not an actual statistic but it's accepted as by most people that something like 50% of marriages you know end up not sticking yeah. around. Well well here's here's kind of my take on that and uh, mull this over okay. see what you think. Yeah. Uh before the 60s or 70s there were a lot more love songs and less about breaking up. After the 60s or 70s, there was probably uh, an even kind of split. You're probably right about that. Um, I, I think that's a good point, Rick, if it's true. I, I don't want to say there weren't breakup songs. My gosh, uh, Sinatra and oh, yeah. all those crooners, right? Um, although yes. they did their oh, yeah. fair share. They were probably close to 50. Well, they were probably closer to 60-40. Uh, yeah, love songs yeah. versus breakup songs, but some of their more famous songs were, you know, one for my baby, one for the road. That kind of stuff would be one of the great, right. great uh, breakup songs of all time. But um, yeah, it's a good point, Rick. It's a really yeah, yeah. good point. I think you're right. All right, let's give Mike a little salute. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Let's keep that, Bill, if you if, if you're okay with it. Uh, welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Open lines Friday, 602-508-0960. We're going to do some interesting, uh, I was going to say political philosophy, but really it's a little different. It's politics philosophy, and we'll get to that in a few moments. Uh, but first, Rob, how are you, sir? <laughs> well, I'm okay, except for the loss of Mike Nesmith. I'm yeah, I know, right? Something weird. dies with um, yeah. that's just more than him when he goes, right? That's right, and and poor yeah, poor Mickey. I mean, he's he's the last one yeah, left. I yeah. mean, there's only one monkey left. But um, I, I I wanted to kind of bring forth a little disagreement about uh, Henry VIII that Rick and Phoenix had brought up. Okay, Henry VIII is a song about a guy who uh, married the widow next door, and her previous seven husbands were named Henry. Yeah, so he became Henry VIII. Yeah, and I, so I yeah, okay. mean, it's kind of a it, it may not be a love song in the standard sense, but I mean, it's a guy who's, I don't know, either bragging or uh, stating a simple 
unusual fact, especially remember Hermes Hermes was a British band. Well, so hold on. Stop right there. Wait one okay. second. What guy, what guy do you know would brag about marrying a woman who's been married seven times before? Well, um, I guess there, you know, we probably have plenty of Hollywood examples uh, like Elizabeth Taylor. Or something. <laughs> um, I think Laurie Morgan had a lot of marriages behind her, too, if I'm not mistaken. I think. I think the yeah, country singer. And, yeah. and there, are, there, there are probably many. Mickey, Ro- more, Mickey Rooney but, had a bunch, didn't he? Mickey, yeah, Mickey Rooney. In the As I was in, going in to St. Ives, I met a man with seven wives. Now, you may think this tale is loony, but that man was Mickey Rooney. That sounds about right. Yeah, I didn't just do that on the fly. Um, <laughs> yeah, I didn't make yeah, that up so here in live. Somehow that stuck yeah, with me from the time I was about four or something. <laughs> okay. No, and it, it, it's an interesting topic because of the things that... Um, uh, you know, when you when you talk about a lot of these famous people like Mickey Rooney and uh, uh, well, let's see, Frank Sinatra had a few, probably not seven or eight, but um, you know, Elizabeth. Taylor I think and so three. Forth. I think anyway, I think uh, three with Frank. Yeah. Yeah. Ava Gardner, um, his oh, first this- one, and then Barbara Marks. Oh no, 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 yeah. no! You're right. Fourth. Uh, what's her name? Woody Allen's ex. Uh, yeah. Right. Oh, uh, the uh, yeah, Pharaoh, Mia Pharaoh. Right. Four. You're right. Four yeah. wives. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um. Uh, the the uh, I was going to go in the opposite direction about breakup songs. Okay, but Mrs. Rob is insisting that I uh, bring forward a couple of her favorite love songs. One is from Cheap Trick called "The Flame." Um, I don't know the words, um, but she likes it. And, you, be- uh, you better Adam, learn them. If this is your I, I wife's know. favorite song, you better learn those words, Rob. <laughs> well, a little marital advice li- here for I, you, buddy. I, I let her listen to it. Uh, so that's, oh, you, know, you let her listen to it. Okay, that's uh, okay. <laughs> I, well, she listens to it. We're getting in a lot of trouble here. Okay. Yeah, and then we got Brian Adams. Have you ever loved a woman? And also, everything I do, I do it. For yeah, you. yeah. Those are. By the way, everything um, I do is one of the top selling singles like all time. Like I mean, I think top ten, believe it or not. No kidding. Yeah, I think I'm right about we, that. I think I'm right from the soundtrack uh, from that from the movie soundtrack. I think I'm right about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Well, I, I'm never doubting the fact that you're right. Um, <laughs> also, I just am. as an aside, the uh, 1962 you had mentioned, you know, the, the good movies that came out. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, in addition, you know, we, we sometimes forget uh, the uh, TV generation, yeah. uh, the shows that came out in 1962, uh, like the Bever- Beverly Hillbillies, oh, good. Uh, Combat, good. Uh, the Alfred Hitchcock Hour, uh-huh. um, the Justin, uh-huh. uh, McHale's Navy, uh-huh. uh, the, uh, the first Tonight Show, uh-huh. um, the Mask Game. Uh-huh. Um, there was a great show called That Was the Week That Was, or uh-huh. TW3, if you ever uh-huh. saw that. That was the first time I saw Tom Lehrer play live. Uh-huh. And uh, Jack Parr had his own show then, too. That's right. Um, and there's some others. I, you yeah, know, I need to go look at the TV shows. You're right. The only thing study I've done with TV shows was how many Westerns there used to be, and they used to dominate television. Now there's nowhere. But you're right about that, Rob. I, I did neglect TV. Uh and, and TV tells us a little bit more about who we are than movies. Michael Medved pointed out some years ago, you know what the number one TV show was in 1968 for a time? You think this is all lefty world in 1968, it's all anti-Vietnam and all that? 
Hee-haw. Country, family, faith. It's interesting. What the, where's the real historical revisionism going on here, huh? Yeah. Good call, Rob. Thank you, sir. 602-508-0960. Be right back. Was that planned? That just came up? <laughs> okay. Carol, Carol, uh, Carol King's uh, song for Herman's Hermits. All right. I said we were going to do a little politics philosophy, and uh, this just is late, um, late coming in the Wall Street Journal opinion page section. Well, let me back it. Yeah. In the Wall Street Journal opinion page section, there's a profile of a man many of you may not have heard of. If you've heard of him, maybe it's because I've quoted him or maybe you have heard of him. But his name is Norman Podhoritz. Many of you are perhaps more familiar with his son, John Podhoritz, who uh, used to uh, write. I guess he still writes occasionally for The New York Post. But Norman uh, Podhoritz was a hugely influential part of my becoming conservative. For many, many, many years, he was the editor of Commentary Magazine. He was the editor of Commentary Magazine when it was at its best. And he, along with Irving Crystal, Bill's dad, are really the two most important founders of a, a movement that's gotten a bad name, in part because it's deserved and in part because it's not deserved. But that movement is known as the neoconservative movement. Uh, when it came to foreign policy, uh, a lot of it turned out, a lot of that theory turned out to be monumentally wrong. Not all of it, but a lot of it. But neoconservatism, many of you have heard me on this before, has taken on a meaning now these days, a pejorative meaning now, even amongst many conservatives that may not quite understand and appreciate the history of that phrase. Neoconservatives originally were nothing more than former liberals and lefties who became conservative. Irving Kristol had the phrase um, – a conservative is a liberal who was mugged by reality. He was really defining what neoconservatism was. They were lefties and liberals. And guess what? Almost all of it in the early days, and I'm talking uh, 60s and 70s, almost all of it was about domestic policy and social policy. We're talking about things like welfare policy. We're talking about things like affirmative action. We're talking about things like economic and tax policy. So, for example, some of the early and most uh, prominent neoconservatives were people like James Q. Wilson or Jim Wilson, whose uh, expertise was on crime. Um, you had uh, Urban, Irving Kristol himself, who was a professor of ur urban policy at New York uh, – at uh, was it New York University? Uh, but it was urban policy that was his expertise. And Norman Podhoritz, who was uh, editor of Commentary, whose real work originally was on race relations, affirmative action and the like. Anyhow, later it became more and more involved in foreign policy. And that's where some of the more pejorative stuff about neoconservatism took hold. But it was it was never a movement exclusive to foreign policy, and in fact, it wasn't originally about foreign policy. And in fact, most of its original scholars, most of its original creators were not foreign policy peeps. They were domestic and social policy 
experts. Uh, Bill Bennett is, was considered one of them. Um, Robert Bartley at the Wall Street Journal. Uh, Jack Kemp was kind of in and out of it. it. He wasn't an easy fit into neoconservatism because he was never really a liberal or a Democrat, but he kind of championed the neoconservative views of the economy, um, the, 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 the pro-growth uh, supply side notion of the economy that was so taken up by now people like uh, Steve Moore, Steve Forbes, Art Laffer, and that crowd. Anyhow, Norman Podhoritz uh, was hugely instrumental to me when I was becoming a, a conservative um, in college because there wasn't there weren't a lot of there weren't a lot of contemporary conservatives. Um, conservative intellectuals to read in those days. You had, of course, your William Buckley's and National Review. But the world of conservative literature was pretty much that, National Review and Commentary magazine. Uh, the Washington Times may not have even been around yet at that time. Uh, human events was mostly on the East Coast. And I think that was pretty much it. So Commentary magazine was Norman Podhoritz's magazine. And I would read those magazines cover to cover and in depth, and they had great scholars in there. Uh, G. Kirkpatrick came to Ronald Reagan's attention because of an essay on foreign policy she wrote in Commentary, an article called Dictatorships and Double Standards. So I'm in college and grad school reading back issues of Commentary, going all the way back to the 60s, and then reading books by, yes, Norman Podhoritz. And surprise, surprise, I, 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 I moved to Washington – and uh, I start getting involved with uh, people who were friendly with Norman, people like Jack Kemp and Bill Bennett and Gene Kirkpatrick. And, you know, we were putting together a conference one day, and it was a conference on uh, – it wasn't patriotism, but something like patriotism. I can't exactly recall it. Civic responsibility, maybe. And I um, – I, I said they, – they gave me the, the job, Jack and Bill, to, to put the conference together. And I said, and I can invite anyone to speak? And they said, sure. Here's the budget. Go go put it together. <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll open it and close it and stuff and moderate panels if you want. And I said, so I could like ask someone like Norman Podhoritz? <laughs> and Bill said, you really – Want Norman? Call Norman. He knew him pretty well. Norman had edited his pieces and commentary for years. So I got on the phone with Norman Podhoritz. You can imagine it's a young person's dream to be able to do this. I did. He said, sure, I'll come to D.C. and do this conference. And I became uh, – we, we became quite friendly. I remember walking the streets of D.C. early morning with him just talking about the world. And he was a tremendous, tremendously gifted intellect writer and creator of other intellects and writers. If you could get into commentary in those days, you kind of had arrived as a public intellectual when Norman Podhoritz was the editor. And, you know, I've just, I, I lost touch with him just because, you know, I moved away from D.C. and all that sort of thing as those things kind of go. And he was in Manhattan and I didn't, you know, I didn't spend much time in New York anyway. And I, um, I opened the Wall Street Journal today and I see this huge profile of Norman Podhoritz. Norman Podhoritz on the spiritual war for America. God bless him. He's 91 years old and still going strong. And uh, I'd love to go through this essay with you and get your feedback on whether you agree with some of the things he's saying or not. Here's one of the interesting things about Norman that made him an outcast yet again. He was an outcast his whole life for his political views, for the way he argued. Very strong pen. 
such a sharp writer. I probably learned as much about writing by reading his work as I did from maybe only two other people, to be honest with you. I never learned how to write from any of my professors except Harry Jaffa, the you know most in demand, was the only one who spent time with me on my writing. But I learned how to write by reading good writers, and Norman was amongst the best. I'd love to go through some of the stuff he says in this article with you. See if you agree. It's, it's you know, when you think about respecting the elders and the life of the mind, um, there, aren't a, there, there aren't a lot left. He's one of the last. It's worth paying attention to him. A, he's earned it, but B, you'll be smarter for it. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Before I get to Norman Podhortz's uh, profile in the Wall Street Journal, which I'll do a little bit later in the show, um, I want to do the nearer thing first. The nearer thing is the guest that's coming up uh, right at the top of the next hour, Sadnan Doom. He's uh, he's an expert on uh, foreign policy, and he has a piece also in today's Wall Street Journal on the democracy summit that's taking place right now. Did you guys know there was a summit for democracy taking place right now involving our State Department and our President of the United States? 110 nations are discussing ways to guard against authoritarianism and to promote human rights. Sadnan writes, speaking generally, it's prudent for America to champion democracy. China and the U.S. are locked in a contest that will shape the globe. You have to ignore history to believe that America can contain China by adopting a realism that's indifferent to ideology, Sadnan writes. Now, that's a pregnant phrase. I'll tell you why. Everyone thinks, not everyone, too many people think that the best foreign policy guru in any of our lifetimes is the still-living Henry Kissinger. People think he's some kind of great foreign policy genius. I have never understood why. I have never understood why. And the reason I've never understood why is for that very thing Sadnan Dumi just wrote that I just read to you. Realism indifferent to ideology. That's what Kissinger was all about. Realism indifferent to ideology. Can we work with China? Can we open China? And that was Kissinger's job, of course, irrespective of the fact that they are a Maoist, Leninist, organized political entity. And if the whole point of realism is containment and maintaining status quo when it comes to power, you will fail and fail again and fail yet again if you are indifferent to ideology, if you take out the Marxism or Leninism or Maoism that is China's governing philosophy. If you divorce the communism from China, then maybe you can have a realism indifferent to ideology. But as long as they adhere to a communist ideology— Everything about foreign policy from their perspective will be about appetite rather than hunger. 
And that, I think, is where we have erred with China from Nixon going forward. We're going to talk to Saad Nandum about that when we come back. We'll be right back. Don't go away. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.